Shauna is there we go. All right. Well, it's great to have you guys here. I'm so excited that you guys have chosen to be here and not out on those nasty jet skis, or at least in the morning services. We're glad that, that you're here on this Memorial Day weekend. And uh, this morning, we're going to continue to talk through, we're about to finish up the book of Colossians. And so as we do that, we're kind of, as we begin to wrap this thing up, one thing that I want us to share is this message I'm talking about today is called the normal Christian life. Now, how many normal people do we have in the room? Okay, there's one, there's two. Luke, you see yourself as normal. Okay, so I'm talking to mainly an abnormal crowd. Okay, this morning you are abnormal, but we really have to begin to think, what does it mean when we talk about the normal Christian life? What should this thing be? What should my life in Christ be like? How should I live this life out? Well, we've been talking through this whole book of Colossians. And one reason that I love preaching through a whole book is because we can begin to see and understand how all these things begin to link up together. Because we've talked about a lot of things in this series. We've talked about the fruit that a Christian life should produce. We've talked about who Jesus is. More than anything else, this book of Colossians gives us a very clear picture of who Jesus Christ is in our life. Last week we talked about how we can be full of Him and how that fullness that we have in Christ should lead us to a life of not only fullness but also of freedom. And so this morning what I want us to deal with is talk about this normal Christian life. When we think about our Christian lives, let's be honest. A lot of times we feel like our lives are kind of like this roller coaster where some days we're up and other days we're down and it's like we're, we're trying to live this thing out, but it's so, it's so hard because our culture goes against it. It goes against who Christ really calls us to be as believers. And so we feel like we're on this treadmill many times where we just don't know how to live this thing out. Well, more than any other place, I believe, I say more than any other place, that may be an over-exaggeration, but... This passage that we look at, Colossians chapter 3, gives us a beautiful picture of what a normal Christian life is supposed to be. Christ wants us to live this life out. He wants us to live it out in front of others. And so that not just on a Sunday morning do we come and experience this joy that we get to experience of what Christ want, we want Christ to be in our life, but we get to live it out throughout the rest of our days. And so I believe Colossians 3 really deals with that. But before we get into that, I want you to think about your own life and what it was like for you when you learned to drive. Okay? I, it's been a long time for me since I learned to drive. Matter of fact, I grew up on a farm, so I was literally driving when I was 12 years old. Okay? Without anyone else in the vehicle, I was driving on highways, I was driving on city streets, mainly in rural areas, but since I was 12 years old... One guy in the first service had to one-up me this morning. He said he got his first ticket literally when he was eight out in West Texas, okay? Eight years old, he got his first ticket. Way to go! Okay, I don't know. You excited about that today? You're excited about having a ticket when you're eight. But I would drive, I've been driving since I was 12, but I have a 15-year-old in my home. That means that my 15-year-old is learning how to drive, and I've been driving with her. Her mother is a chicken and won't drive with Kara, but I take this on. We're coming up on Father's Day, so we can, I, can, I can hold on to that. But I forget what it's like to just normally drive or learn how to drive. There's so many things that I've been doing since I was such a young age 
That I just do those things natural. You know, it's like staying away from the curb. That's such an important thing to learn, okay? And uh, not pulling into stop signs. Stopping when pedestrians are actually in front of you. These are all very important things. Well, Kara had a milestone this week, and we didn't even tell her mom until a day after, just because we didn't want her to worry, but Kara, for the very first time, drove on 820 this week, and we lived to tell about it. Let's uh, Yeah, thank you, God. We, we, lived, we lived through 820, and it was on a Wednesday night at about 530. We were heading over to church. I said, in just a few months, you're going to be driving on your own. I am going to actually drive with you on 820. Now, here's the exciting thing. Two miles before we even got to Loop 820, we were on Highway 377, and I said it then, and I said, Kara, there's something very important that you need to understand. When we get to 820, now that's still two miles ahead, she says, why why are you telling me now? I'm telling you now so that I don't yell at you then, okay? I'm trying to, I'm really preparing my own heart more than I'm preparing hers. I said, there's one thing you must do, okay? She's like, Okay, what is it? What's the one thing? I said, you cannot stop. I said, when we go to merge into traffic, you're going to have to stick the nose of the car into traffic. You cannot stop because if you stop, then I'm going to scream. Okay? That's going to be a bad thing. We don't want that, do we? No, no, we don't. I see that all the time. Do not want that, no. So... What you can't do is you can't stop. And I'm here to tell you, she did a phenomenal job. She nosed herself right into traffic. She didn't stop. And I was so proud of her. But I just brought to my mind what it was like to drive for the first time. I don't remember what that's like. Normal for me is totally different than normal for her. And as we talk about this this morning, about the normal Christian life, Paul gives us a brilliant picture in Colossians chapter 3 of what the normal process of someone who is called and committed their lives to him, what it's supposed to be like. Now, the reason, I, again, I love doing this in looking at a whole book and seeing how Paul did this, I remember and I understand that Paul is writing to a church that he really didn't know except through the testimony of a man named Epaphras. Epaphras had told him all about these Colossian Christians. And as he told them about these Colossian Christians, Paul wrote this book called Colossians back to them to say, hey, this is some things that you need to understand. This is what normal, a normal Christian life should look like. And that's the reason I want to offer up to our students, any of our adults, to our kids, this is something I'm going to be doing this summer. I'm going to be memorizing Colossians 3. And that is my pastoral challenge for you throughout the summer is to memorize Colossians 3. And there's going to be a great prize for any adult, child, or teenager that does that with me over the summer. And here's the reason why. In this passage, we see listed out how Paul wants us to live this life out that he's called us to. That Jesus has called us to. Last week we learned that you can't get any more of Christ in you than the moment that you ask Christ to come in and be your Savior and Lord. Jesus didn't pull any punches on you. He came into your life and He fills your life. But that's what we call the process of justification. That's when we first accept Christ. What we're talking about today in Colossians 3, Paul now says Colossians 2 was dealing with justification. How you receive Christ for the very first time. Now we're talking about the process of what's called sanctification. 
That is how you are living this life out on a daily basis. How you are, and this is the, the key thing I want you to see today. You're going to write something down. Write this down. Here's the goal of the normal Christian life. That your life becomes more and more looking like Christ's life every single day. Have you ever noticed couples who have grown old together? Married couples. And if they've been married 30, 40 50 years, for some of you, this is a tragic thing that I'm getting ready to tell you. You tend to look more like your spouse, okay? I hate to tell some of you that today, but you, over time, will begin to look like your spouse. So much so that many times when people have been married a long time, and I had Liz and Jerry Maxwell stand up in the first service. They've been married 53 years, and I think they kind of look a little bit more alike today than they probably did when they were 20. But when you live your life around people, you're going to tend to be like those people. That's a great message for us to understand that we need today to be around other believers. We need to be in a life group with other believers here at EVC. We need to be around other believers, not just on Sunday mornings, but throughout the week as well, because their character rubs, excuse me, rubs off on our life. And the whole goal of the normal Christian life is not this roller coaster view, but it is a view where we are steadily becoming more and more like Christ. As I've preached to you before, I believe that the kingdom of Jesus Christ has already begun in your heart and life. If you've accepted Christ, the kingdom of God has been planted on you and it is growing. That means that your earth needs to look more and more like heaven every day. In other words, your life needs to look more and more like the life of Christ. That's the reason that I don't understand sometimes how we think that on Sundays if we come and hear a message that our life is going to instantly look more like Christ. It's not. It's when we're in His Word on a daily basis. That's the reason the Gospels are so important for us to read. Why? Because they are how Jesus interacted with other people. And when we see how Jesus interacted with others, we saw we see how He interacts with children, how He interacts with adults, then we begin to see what our character and what our life is supposed to be like. That's the normal Christian life, a steady growth. Now, you and I both know that we deal with issues of sin in our life. And we're going to deal with that very clearly today. Some people would take the message like we heard last week where, hey, I have all the fullness of Christ in me, so that means I'm not going to struggle with sin anymore. I don't know anybody like that in this room, and I am not like that. I still struggle with sin on a daily basis. Allison, is that true? She would say, yes, that's true. Jennifer would say it's true. I, there are... People who've known me for a long time who know that I still struggle with sin. And as we get to know each other, I'll know the sins that you struggle with. You'll know what I struggle with. But the normal Christian life is that we build the character of Christ. We see His character lived out in us. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 talks about this. It says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that the testing Uh, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What Romans 12 is talking about, Paul again is the writer of the book of Romans as he is the, the book of Colossians. And Paul says, you are being squeezed into the world's mold, but you don't have to live that way anymore. 
Jesus Christ has freed you from the power of sin. You're still going to struggle with sin as long as you're alive. You're going to struggle with it. But He has freed you from its power. You don't have to obey it anymore. You don't have to live this treadmill of sin continually in your life anymore. You can begin to rid your life of sin because you can be transformed into the relationship of Christ. Be pressed into the mold of who Christ is. But it's work to do that. We can think and come to church today. We can sit in our life groups. We can be around Christians. And we're still going to struggle with sin. Because it's work. And so this message today is that this life, to live the normal Christian life, is work. And it's going to mean doing some things in your life on a continual basis. Not just doing them once, but doing them on a continual basis. That's the reason I want to challenge you to memorize Colossians 1 through verse, at least verse 17, but go through the whole chapter of Colossians. Why? Because as you see this, as you struggle with sin, you'll remember these phrases and you'll remember that it's not your struggle anymore. It's Christ's struggle. Read with me in in Colossians chapter 3. You don't have to read with me, but the first thing I want you to understand is we have to set our mind. Colossians 3 verse 1 says this, if you, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, and here's the end of the book, okay? Here is the last chapter. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with Him in glory. What Paul is saying is the end has already written. Now, I for one am very excited and see if you guys are. I'm excited that the Mavericks won the Western Conference Finals. You guys excited about that? All right, thank you. We can get a little hoop in here. Okay. That's good. And I want you guys to also know that since the one year that I've been here at EVC that the Rangers won the American League Championship, and the Mavericks have won the Western Conference Finals. Now, hey, I'm not saying that's because of me. I'm just saying that since I've been at EVC, that's what's happened. Now, the Cowboys are on their way. Tony Romo is now married, okay? He's married as of last night, so he's, he's got his... He's understanding what he's supposed to do, and his wife is going to keep him in line. So these are what happens. Now, I don't know what your life is like, but I love to watch sports, I love to experience sports. I love to play it. But here's the thing for me. I can't watch the Mavericks and then go to sleep. It's just impossible for me. So I've begun a new ritual in my life. You guys are going to think I'm nuts, okay? I, wa- I record the game and do not watch it. Because if they're losing, I get upset and I can't sleep. If they're winning, I get excited and I can't sleep. So I record the game, and the first thing in the morning, I check ESPN, and I see... Did they win or did they lose? If they lost, I don't watch the game. Why do I need that anger? Why do I need that difficulty in my life? Instead, if they win, I go back and I watch. I don't care. Some of you, this is really bugging me. This microphone's bugging me today. I'm sorry. Some of you this week watched that game where they were down by 15 points with four and a half minutes to go. Okay? How many of you watched that game? Okay? You watched that game and you didn't go to sleep until 2 to 3 a.m. in the morning. I know you. The bags are still underneath your eyes this morning, but not me. Not me. I didn't watch the game. And I woke up the next morning. They won? 
I knew that they were down by 15 points. So I wasn't going to put myself through that anger anymore. But I heard that they won. And then I went back and I watched it. And I watched how they won the game. I was so excited about how they did that. Although it didn't record the last five minutes of the game. So (laughs) I'd like to tell you that it worked out for me. It didn't really work out. But here's the point. The point is the Mavericks won and I could be overjoyed. I don't care if they were down by 15 points. I don't think, I don't, I don't care if that guy, that bearded dude, uh, got in our face and was, was, was angry, making me angry all the time because I knew this. You can sit back down on the bench because you're going to foul out of the game and we're going to win. I knew the end of the game and here's the point for us. Folks, we know the end of the game. It's already been recorded. Jesus Christ has told us we win. Heaven is coming. And what this passage is saying is set your mind. Live like Jesus Christ is coming back because He is. Live like He's already won the battle over sin in your life because He has. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. You and I can set our mind on what is going to be because we can live as the already but not yet. We've already won, but we have not yet realized it in all its fullness. What Paul says about the normal Christian life is you can live this life not agonizing over your kids. You can live this life not agonizing over your own salvation. You can live this life... Because you can go into work, and even though no one else lives for Christ at your work, you can still go in day after day, because I've already won the battle. Set your mind on things above, not on things here on this earth, because I've already won the battle for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 says this, For though we walk in the flesh, and that's what we're walking in, right? This is flesh that you see. We are walking in the flesh. We're living this life. Even though our spirit truly is with Christ, we are living this life out in flesh. We are not waging war against the flesh. According to it, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. But we have divine power to pull down strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And listen to this. We take every thought captive to obey God, to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. We keep our eyes focused on Christ. And does that mean we're going to live our life walking day in and day out only with our faces in God's Word, in the Bible, only reading it, not doing anything else? We're going to always think the right things? No, we're not. But here's the process. When our character becomes more and more like Christ, when we set our minds, when we've been told all of our lives, you can do anything that you what? Set your minds to. When we set the focus of our minds on Christ, then we will begin to live like Him. And our character will become conformed to His character. But we must set our minds on Him. The author and perfecter of our faith, as Hebrew talks of, Hebrews talks about. Does it mean that we'll be do, do nothing else? No. But at work, 
at play, when you're on vacation this summer, when you're dealing with that difficult neighbor, when you're going back to school for just the last few days this week, when you deal with that difficult person who's harmed you in some way, it means that you will be able to walk this faith out because you've set your mind on Christ. The battle's already won. It's already DVR'd in heaven. God says your battle has already been won. So set your minds on the fact that I've already won the battle and live your life on this earth knowing that your minds are set there. Every thought captive. Can you imagine what that means? That literally every thought that you take captive to your to, to the, the cause of Christ in your life. There's a billboard that I pass every time I come to EVC. And I've got to be honest, it does not promote Christ. It doesn't promote anything that's good. And today, as I was doing this, I was thinking about setting my minds. And what I did, I looked away from it, not putting my focus there, taking every thought captive. That's the process. For some of us, that means accountability with other people. For others of us, it means that we make sure that our computers don't have access to certain things. For others, uh, as has been one of the things for me, it means that, that I don't have the controls. I don't have the password to areas on my TV. I give that to Jennifer. Why? Because I don't want to fight that battle. I don't want to deal with that in a hand-to-hand combat sort of way. I don't want to get to that battle and then have to feel like, hey, do I have the strength to overcome that? No, the battle is fought before. We were talking about this. I was talking about this with some guys this week. And we were talking about putting filters on our computers so that it's an opportunity for someone else to know everything that we view, they view. Every site that we go to, it sends an email to them that says, hey, they've been to this site. Why do we do that? Why would we go to the trouble to do that? Because I want my character to look more like Christ and its work. It's not going to happen just because I want it to happen. It means that I'm going to have to walk this faith out. I'm going to have to put things in place to help my mind be set on Christ and set on things above, not on things on the earth. I want to give you some filters. I want to encourage you to write down these questions this morning. Some filters as to how you're going to live this life. As you come into contact with something that you put before your eyes, if you come into contact with a relationship, with a struggle, with... with uh, any type of relationship that you might face, maybe it's someone that you have difficulty getting along with, I want you to file through and work through these particular questions. The first filter is this. Is what I'm putting before my eyes, is what I'm setting my mind on, is it, first of all, is it true? Is it true? Is it based on God's Word and based on what's God's best for me? Is what I am looking at, is what I'm seeking to do, is it true? Is it God's best will for me. I want you to think about the things as you go through your day that if you ask that question to, you would leave out. Is it true? Is it true of me? Is it true of who God wants me to be? The second question I want you to ask yourself as you set your mind on Christ, it is this. Does it contradict the clear teaching of God's Word. Last week we talked about how God's Word is a standard that does not change. It is a standard to teach us, to rebuke us, to direct us, to train us in righteousness. God's Word is that in our life. When we line up our life against it, the question is this. 
Does it contradict the clear teaching of God's word? And then the third one is this. Does what I'm looking at, thinking about, setting my mind on, does it motivate me towards faith and obedience or towards fear and disobedience? Okay, let me say that one more time. Does it motivate me towards faith and obedience or towards fear and disobedience? I want you to think about the things in your life that fear motivates you to do. When something is based in fear, matter of fact, 1 John tells us that perfect love, God's love, casts out all fear. So anything that's of fear is not from God. But what are the things that you fear? Do you fear a lack of control? That something's going to be out of your control? I guarantee you, as a father, as I'm thinking about, as I have something on my foot, as as a father, as I'm thinking about my 15-year-old who's driving for the very first time, there's a lot of fear that overcomes me. But I'm not going to live in fear because God has control of my child, not me. For me, acceptance is one of those things. Matter of fact, I had someone that I trust who told me this morning, they reminded me, Randy, you tend to do whatever someone asks you to do. You can say no. Why do I do that? Okay? That's not just because I'm nice. I know. You guys think I do that just because I'm nice. No. It's because I want you to like me. Honestly. I do a lot of things for people sometimes because I want people to like me. You know where that really is based? It's based upon fear of the fact that people won't like me. What if I tell them things that they don't want to hear? They may not like me. Does that mean I shouldn't say it? If God's Word says it, then that means I should be the mouthpiece for His Word. But you see, the thing is, if something doesn't lead us towards faith and obedience, but it leads us to fear and disobedience, it's not something we should set our minds to. This is no easy message. This is the process of sanctification. Last week what we were talking about was justification. It's when we accept Christ at that point in time where we receive Christ as our Savior and Lord. I believe that happens at one point in time. You may not remember the day or the hour. That's not the important thing for me. The important thing is that you come to faith at a point at which you realize you cannot save yourself and you ask Christ to come into your life. That's justification. That's what Paul was talking about in chapter 2. And now he's moving on to something totally different in chapter 3. Now he's talking about the process of sanctification. This working out where you're refining your character to look more like Christ. And that's going to be work. Because our sin nature, my sin nature, your sin nature, always is going to work against that. So we set our mind, those filters. Is it true? Does it motivate me towards faith and obedience or fear and disobedience? And does it contradict the clear teaching of God's Word? Setting our minds means this. Jesus already has the victory won. Are you going to live like you have already won the victory? Are you going to live like you're always upset and in the battle. The second thing I want us to see is that we need to put off the old. If we're going to work in this process of sanctification, it means that we put off the old. Now, the illustration I want to use for this, over the last two years, I lost about 37 pounds. Okay, And the great thing about that was, as I lost that weight and I went in and I put on the old clothes that I had, what happened to those old clothes? They don't fit me anymore okay the basis of this illustration would hold that i should not have gained any of the weight back 
Unfortunately, that might not be the case, but that would go against the illustration. So what I'm saying today is this. When you put off the old, the bottom line is this. The old clothes don't fit you anymore. And so what Paul moves to, he says, first of all, you've got to set your mind on things above. But the second thing is, you've got to do the work. You and I have to do the work to put off the old clothes that we used to wear. Because you want to know why? They don't fit your character anymore. They don't fit on Christ's character who is being renewed in you on a daily basis. They don't fit you anymore. So he lists these things out. Put to death. Okay? Paul doesn't mince words. He says, kill it. Okay? He doesn't say, play with it. He doesn't say, go around and see if it's still alive. He says, put the axe to it. Kill it. What does he say about that? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he lists it out. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. We'll come back to those. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked. He got in their face. He'd say to EVC, Hey guys, I've read the book. I've seen your life. I know in these things you once walked. But these clothes don't fit you anymore. They're not part of your character anymore. They shouldn't fit. He says in the same way, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. You've got new clothes. You've got a new nature in you. I have that new nature, so we must put to death the things that we once had. He says, here then there is no Greek or Jew, no circumcised or uncircumcised, no Saginaw, no Boswell. He says, no barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. See, Paul had read their mail. Epaphras was the pastor of this church at Colossae. And he had come to Paul And as he had spent time with Paul, then Paul wrote back to this church that he had never met. And as if he were writing to us here at EVC, he would know us through our pastors. He would know the things that we struggle with. What I don't want you to do is to look at this list and go, okay, I don't find my particular pet issue. I don't find the sin that I struggle with. I don't see pride in big red letters in this passage. So I must be able to hold on to my pride. No. Paul knew the things that the church at Colossae, he knew what they were dealing with, and he spoke very clearly to those. There are two other great lists that I'd encourage you to go and read. One is in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 to the Ephesians church, he writes. To the Galatians church in Galatians chapter 5, he puts another list. But even then, if your particular sin that you struggle with, that I struggle with, are not in the list, those are things that you need to die to. But he deals with it. He says sexual immorality. That is any sexual sin that would take place outside the bonds of marriage in the way that God intended. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't adjust Scripture to that particular culture. As a matter of fact, the Colossian church would deal with this maybe even more so than we do today. The Greek word is pornea. And we don't have to think about what we get from that word. Obviously, pornography comes straight 
from this word. But Paul is dealing with the Colossian church in which there would have been temples where they would be temple prostitutes. And it was part of just the Colossian lifestyle that if they were going to participate in their culture, they would go to the temple prostitutes. That was part of their daily life. So we go, okay, so their sexual immorality is different than ours. No, it's not. Paul is very clear. Sexual sin has huge consequences. I can take you to marriage after marriage where an addiction to pornography or a relationship outside the marriage has led to the breakup or the, dis- the destruction of trust inside that marriage. It's huge. It does devastating things. Pornography itself in our culture is one of the most devastating things. And I think it's devastating more today than ever before, primarily because when I was growing up, To get access to pornography, you had to go and face someone. You had to purchase it from someone or receive it. I'll never forget that one, the very first time I ever saw any type of pornography, one of my friend's fathers owned an apartment complex and they were evicting a man. And he pulled me over. And this man, for the town that I grew up in, he won the dirtiest man in this town award. He had it hanging on his wall. And they had evicted him. And my friend pulled me over and said, Hey, I want you to look at this. But you see, there was someone face to face. You had to get it from someone. And today, this is such an issue because now you don't have to face anyone. All you have to do is download it. All you have to do is hide it. And what Paul is saying is sexual sin is still alive today. And it's destructive. It's not necessarily... A worse sin. It is not a worse sin than any other sin. It is all the sin that put Christ on the cross. But the point is, it's work to get it out of your life. It means that you're going to have to put safeguards on your TV, on your computer. You're going to have to have accountability with others, or you too will fall into that trap. And some of you that I'm speaking to today, I know you know what I'm talking about. And you struggled with it, or you've seen the devastation in your own family. So he says, sexual immorality... These clothes don't fit your new character anymore. Put it to death. Don't walk around with it anymore. He says, not only sexual immorality, but impurity. Impurity would be any moral uncleanness. Anything that doesn't reflect the character of Christ, don't put it on. Put it to death. Evil desire. These are desires that are outside of whatever God's best is for us. How many things in your life and in my life, if we were just to walk through today, would we say, those are desires that are not God's best for me? Paul says it's going to be work. It's going to mean that you're cleaning these things out of your life. And it's not going to be easy. Then he moves on to this one. Covetousness, which is idolatry. It's interesting that Paul uses this one because this could be a blanket for so many other things. What Paul is saying is, When you covet something, when you want something that someone else has, here's the real issue. It's idolatry. How is it idolatry? Paul, what do you mean it's idolatry? It's idolatry because you're putting yourself in a place where everything else exists for you. So now it's covetousness because you're wanting something that really is not God's best for you. It becomes an idol to you because who's become God? It's become, you've become God because now you're saying, I want all these things. So we could lump greed into this. 
We could lump any time that we look at something else, we could lump lust into this. When we want something else that someone else has and we want to bring it to ourselves, what we're saying is, I am God and I'm bringing everything else to me. He says, that's idolatry. Cut it off. Put it to death. It's not easy. And then Paul, what my grandfather would say, he quit preaching and went to meddling. Okay? He got in their face. He not only deals with, okay, at this point some people would say, like the rich young ruler, well, dude, I got no problem with any of those things. Those are for the really bad people. No. He said, these are some of the things we've all been dealing with. This is who we were. But then he goes to the next level and he starts dealing with things that are motives, that are actually emotions. He says, anger. This is a settled attitude of hostility. Okay? A settled attitude of hostility. 1996, I am watching the Arkansas Razorbacks play in the national championship game of basketball. I've already told you I have an issue with sports. Okay? So, my chair, I have one of those great recliner chairs where the feet are propped up. I'm watching the game by myself. A call does not go our particular way. And I hit the chair. And the chair, it was a reminder. I don't have it anymore. But it's a reminder to me because I broke the chair. It was a constant reminder to me of my out-of-control anger. Another particular time, it was a Dallas Cowboy game. Jennifer was asleep. Kara was just a baby. She was asleep. I had set the alarm, and I forgot that there was a glass break detection on our alarm. And at the top of our entertainment center, something didn't go our particular way, and I just hit it about like that, about that hard. And on top of it was a glass uh, piece of crystal, and it vibrated enough. It didn't break, thank the Lord. But it vibrated enough that it set off our alarm and woke everybody up. And I had to confess to Jennifer because I had no, oh, I don't know how it happened. I don't know what. I said, I didn't break anything. I just hit the entertainment center. Why'd you hit the entertainment center? It was there, okay? It was there. Anger. I'm telling you, I have dealt with this. Paul is in my grill right here. He's going, you've dealt with this. You can't watch sports anymore. You have to record them and see if people won. How sick are you? Okay? Because I know where I struggle and I know my weakness and this is one of them. He goes on to say, he gets deeper. He says, wrath, a verbal outburst of evil passion. Okay? Am I speaking anybody else's language out there? A verbal outburst. Paul says, cut it off. Put it to death. He now then goes to even a deeper level, not to just the outward activities, but actually the motivations that create those outward activities. Now he's getting to the issues of pride and other things that lie behind all the other manifested sins that we can see. These pride and other things that puff us up are the things he begins to deal with. He says malice. You know what malice is? Any ill will. Desiring that someone else might be injured on your way home today. When you're driving on the road, will you have malice to someone in your heart? They got to the stoplight just a little bit faster than you did. They didn't pull away so you honk your horn. You desire evil things to happen to them. That's malice. Paul says that clothing doesn't fit you 
anymore. It doesn't fit the character of Christ who's in you. Cut it off. It's not easy, but cut it off. Slander. Insulting, malicious speech towards someone. Okay? Some of you, when you hear a story, you're thinking in your mind, who am I going to tell this story to first? This is some great stuff. Who am I going to say this? That's slander. It's also gossip. Because you're not a part of that story anymore. You're not a direct part of it. It's now slander or it's gossip towards someone else. So see, Paul is dealing with all sorts of things. You hear that thing at work and you can't go, you can't wait to go and tell someone else about what's happening to someone else. Paul says lying to one another. Deceptive, distorting, untruthful speech. Things that you lie about. Paul simply says this, guys, set your minds on things above, not on the earthly things, not on the things that you, you're going to live out. This is hard work, but these clothes don't fit you anymore. But if we take clothes off and we don't put clothes on, what are we? We're naked, right? We don't have any clothes on. So Paul says, wait a second, we're not going to just take stuff off. We're not just going to put to death these things in our life. The other thing we're going to do is now we must put on new clothes. And that's the reason this process, that's the reason I want to encourage you to even memorize this whole passage. Because it's setting your mind on things above. It's putting off the old, but it's also putting on the new. He says this, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Okay, now stop right there. Look at that. Put on then as God's chosen ones, Holy and beloved. What God is saying, what Paul is saying to us is this. This is who you are. This is your new character. If you have Christ in you, this is who you really are. Do not allow Satan to get a foothold in your life to convince you that these wrong actions that you still struggle with are really who you are. Because this is who you are. You are God's chosen ones. Holy and beloved. That word holy... Do you see yourself as holy? I don't know about you. I do not see myself as holy. When I look in the mirror, I don't see someone as holy. Usually I see myself as, man, I can't believe that I still struggle with the things that I struggle with. But what this passage says is this. God sees you as holy. Because He doesn't see you through your eyes. He sees Christ imprinted on you. You are holy. And what does He give us? What is the clothes? What are the clothes that now fit us? Compassionate hearts. Kindness. Humility. Meekness and patience. Bearing with one another. And if you have a complaint with, against one another, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. Christ is imprinted upon your heart. He's done all this for you. How on earth can you sit in judgment on somebody else who's done bad things to you when Christ has forgiven you of all your stuff? When Christ has given you these new clothes to put on, how can you sit in judgment on someone else? Yes, what they've done is wrong. You don't have to forget it, but you do forgive it because you've been forgiven. Notice that he says, first of all, you have compassionate hearts. If you were to line up all the things that Paul said, and remember the first one he said, it was sexual immorality. 
He said impurity, evil desire. If you line those things up with this idea of compassionate hearts, the clothes that you now have on is Christ's compassion. That means that a sexually immoral lifestyle brings other people into your life. But instead now of viewing them as objects to give you pleasure, what you now see is compassion that you literally now can view them in a different way. They're not there to give you, to, to meet your needs. You're there to have compassion upon them. He then says kindness, which is a sweet disposition. Thoughtful, interpersonal dealings with people. When I think of kindness, I think of Jesus Christ literally getting down on a child's level and talking with them. When Jesus, when I, when I picture Jesus talking with little children, I believe Jesus got on their level. And that is something I love to do. I love to get down into a child's level and talk to them at that level because it brings a personal nature, a kind heart. Up here, as one of the kids here at EBC, I am Mr. Brandy. I am the giant, okay? But when I get down on their level, then it brings kindness. It brings someone else's level down to yours. That's what kindness does in our lives. And that's one, of the cloth- that's one of the pieces of clothing that Jesus gives us. The other one is, he says, humility, meekness. The greatest example of humility is, again, Jesus Christ, Philippians chapter 2, when it says, He did not desire equality with God, did not equate it as something to be grasped, but He emptied Himself and took up obedience even to the death on a cross. He took your sin, He took my sin, and He took all of these things. He humbled Himself. The greatest example, the reason we need to be reading the Gospels in and out of our life on a daily basis is because we need to know how Jesus acted and reacted in situations because that's the new clothing that we have. Meekness, patience. I want to encourage you, be careful when you pray for patience, because God will put you in positions to exhibit it, okay? He will put people in your life that get on your everlast living nerve, okay? And it may be your child, or it may be your spouse, or it may be a co-worker, or it may be that person up the delegation chain from you that keeps shoving their work to you, or people below you in the delegation chain that chain that never does the work that you give them to do but he says patience and he takes patience to the next level he says and when they really irritate you you bear up with one another in other words what he's saying is when it really gets tough you literally feel like you're carrying them how many of you have co-workers that you feel like you carry okay there we go you are literally bearing them up and this is definitely talking about a spiritual, a Christian context. That when we are in life groups together, when we take care of one another, we literally bear one another's burdens. We hold each other up. We bear with one another. And when there's wrong, we find forgiveness in our heart because it's based on Christ. So the question for us then is, as you put on the new... How are you putting to death your own flesh? How are you putting on the new clothing that God has given you? He says love, bearing with one another. And above all these, put on love, 
which does what? It binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love is the thing. Godly, what this is called, the word that's used here, the Greek language, is agape. It is a love that truly only God can give towards us. A totally selfless kind of love. That love binds us together. And when all that happens, what's the result? The peace of Christ rules in your heart. To which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Here's the end, end result of all of this. When we set our minds on Christ, when we live as though Christ is our goal, that heaven has already won, the battle's already won for us, when we put off the old things, when we put on the new things, what happens is Christ's peace rules in our heart. I want you to think of a time in your life when you really felt peace. Everything was right in your world. Think of what that felt like. When Christ, when you've worked in your heart and you've worked on your own sin and you've set your mind on Christ, then the decisions that you've got to make on a daily basis, the peace of God is there. You don't struggle with the, all the things, the pros and the cons. We're going to list them out on a piece of paper. We're going to decide what's the best decision for us to make at this point. You don't necessarily always have to go through that process because the peace of Christ rules your heart. You know what the right decision is. How do you know what the right decision is? Because it lines up with God's Word. It lines up with the character of Christ. It's not my old way of life that I've continually struggled with. It's the new clothing that God has given me. It's in right standing with who God is. I just make the decision because the peace of God rules in our life. And we can make those decisions on a daily basis. See what I'm talking about. And the reason I think this passage is so important. This is the process of discipleship. Becoming more and more like Christ. The end result of all this. The final point is this. Live for Christ with unity. Paul desired us to so protect the unity of the body of Christ. That means our local church and even our church in macro, or the, the church, the evangelical church that calls Christ our Savior and Lord. He desires us to be unified because unity portrays Him to this world and says, they are mine. We can live in unity because as Paul says here in verse 11, it says, there is neither Greek nor Jew circumcised or uncircumcised. In Ephesians, he says, there is neither male nor female. There's neither barbarian or Scythian. Those are two groups that would never, ever get along with each other. He's saying, there's no distinction here. There is neither slave nor free. He has in his mind the relationship, because he mentions Onesimus in chapter 4. Onesimus was a slave to Philemon. And Onesimus had run away and he had come in contact with Paul. And because he was in contact with Paul, Paul sent him back to his slave owner and he sent a letter because Philemon, he wanted Philemon to accept Onesimus as his brother and not his slave anymore. There's no distinctions, clergy, pastors, and people who belong to the church. There's no distinctions anymore. We have unity. And that means that we go back to slander and malice. And if we have things against one another, 
we need to protect this body. That we can be unified and project Christ to this world that we live in as our Savior and Lord. The message is really simple, but it's really, really difficult. This life that we have, this desire that we have to live for Christ, it's not easy. We have the fullness of Christ. We can't get any more of Christ in us. But we have to live this process out on a daily basis to set our minds on Him, to take off the old, to put on the new, to live like He desires us to, unified together. Can we pray this morning? You may be here this morning and as you think about this, you know that you don't have that relationship with Christ. You can call upon Him today and He will come into your life. And you don't have to deal with this question of eternity ever again. You can, just as we've talked about, set your mind on Christ. And He will always be in your heart. Others of you this morning, as I read through those lists of sins, it was scary for you because you go, I'm still struggling with that one. There's great hope for you. There's great hope for me. And that is... Christ covers you if you have Him as your Savior and Lord. As God sees you, He sees only His holy and beloved Son, His child, His daughter, His Son. He sees you, but He really sees Christ imprinted upon your life. Now live like you are. Live like Christ is living in you. Father, I thank You for this day and I thank You for each of these who are here. Lord, I pray that as we live this out each day, Lord, I pray that that we would find new grace every day. Lord, that as we even seek to memorize this, as we put it in our heart, that we might, even in times of temptation, bring it out as You did, Jesus. And say to Satan, you don't own us. We've been bought with a price. Lord, would you free us as we work against the sin in our lives, as we take off the old and put on the new. Lord, may we bring honor and glory to you as your church, your bride today. In Jesus' name, amen.